Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, assault, mutilation, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Between 1975 and 1980, a man named Peter Sutcliffe murdered 13 girls and women in the UK. The killings caused mass hysteria in the city of Leeds. No one felt safe. Sutcliffe evaded arrest until 1981, and this wasn't his first encounter with police in relation to the murders. Far from it, actually. Detectives had questioned him nine times over the course of those five years. Now, when I tell you how Sutcliffe was continually let off, you might not even believe me. Once, officers showed him a picture of the killer's boot print, but didn't notice that Sutcliffe was wearing those very boots. Another time, a five-pound note was found in a victim's pocket. The note was traced back to Sutcliffe's place of work but police didn't connect the dots. And for 18 months, authorities were tricked into thinking the killer was another man entirely. When Sutcliffe was finally convicted, the people of Leeds were too enraged to feel relieved. To this day, many believe that misogyny and other forms of prejudice blinded the investigators. While people still feel that police bias is prevalent in the UK, The botched investigation may have also taught authorities how not to handle a case like Sutcliffe's. Today's story is an example of that. Decades after Sutcliffe was put behind bars, two seemingly unrelated cases converge, and Scottish forces refuse to make the same mistakes. But for those detectives, learning from the past also means realizing that it'll take more than pure dedication to solve these crimes. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years, and we'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long-dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we'll investigate the 1991 disappearance of Vicki Hamilton, a mystery that stumped police for years until a sudden confession and one detective's quick thinking blow the whole case wide open. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Learn from your mistakes. That's a piece of advice most of us hear from the time we're kids. Hey, if you fall off your bike, you learn better balance. This advice follows us into our adulthood when we miss deadlines, fight with our friends, or get our hearts broken. The next time we face those situations, we're prepared. We say something different. We do things right, or at least we try to. But what about when the stakes are even higher? Say the life of an innocent person. 
And what if the mistake isn't just yours, but a failure of the system you're a part of? This is the exact hurdle Scotland authorities faced in the winter of 1991. And it all started in a young woman's small apartment. It's 7.50 p.m. on February 8th. An icy wind blows gusts of snow down the streets of Livingston, Scotland. 19-year-old Sharon Hamilton paces nervously in her living room. Her 15-year-old sister, Vicky, was supposed to arrive 20 minutes ago. Sharon looks out her window at the dismal weather and tells herself the buses are probably just running behind. But she has no way of knowing what's actually going on. Remember, it's the early 90s, after all. There aren't cell phones, so it's not like Sharon can shoot Vicky a text. This isn't how Sharon wants the weekend to begin. Vicky's visit is important because it's her first time visiting ever since Sharon moved out of their mom's house two years prior. And that wasn't an easy decision. Sharon loves her mom and three younger siblings. But when she was six years old, her parents divorced and her dad moved out. So she had to start helping look after the other kids. By age 17, Sharon was ready for some independence. She moved to Livingston, about 20 miles away. Her mother didn't take it well, and this may have prevented Sharon from ever wanting to visit. Instead, she started writing them letters. And through these letters, she and her mom repaired their relationship. Soon, Sharon and Vicky started bonding as well. Sharon's happy that she and her sister have grown closer. She hopes this weekend will cement their bond. That is, if Vicky ever shows up. Finally, there's a knock at the door. Sharon is relieved to see Vicky standing there. She's also struck by how tall she is and how her brown eyes have deepened. Sharon fights the urge to badger Vicky about what took her so long. She doesn't want to play the role of parent anymore. Instead, the two sisters hug and Sharon welcomes Vicky in from the cold. They catch up for a while and make plans to go shopping the next day. Then they settle in for the night. The next day at the mall, the sisters talk as they hop from store to store. Vicky tells Sharon about her dream to become a veterinarian. She says she's ready to start taking school more seriously. Sharon knows that Vicky has been getting into trouble at home and even got caught shoplifting. But the elder Hamilton is pleasantly surprised to see a put-together young woman in front of her. Perhaps because of Vicky's show of maturity, Sharon decides to take her out to a club with her friends that night. While they're getting ready to leave, Vicky slips on some of her mother's rings that she supposedly borrowed. Sharon admires how chic she looks, even if she did take the rings without permission. At the club, Vicky is funny and sociable. She drinks like it's nothing new to her, but paces herself and keeps her composure. Sharon beams with pride as she realizes her baby sister is all grown up. 
That feeling fades the next day when Vicky needs to head home, but she can't seem to figure out her bus route. Sharon helps her map it out. She'll take one bus about six miles from Livingston to Bathgate, transfer, then take another bus the remaining 18 miles to Falkirk, the stop nearest where she lives in Reading. Sharon walks Vicky to the bus stop. When the bus pulls up, she gives her little sister a tight hug. Then she asks the bus driver to let Vicky know when they're at her stop. Vicky climbs onto the bus and waves goodbye. We know only a few details about what happens next. We know that Vicky sits directly behind the driver, that 20 minutes later, the driver stops and tells her they're in Bathgate. Vicky gets off and looks around for her connecting stop, but doesn't see it. She turns around just as the bus pulls away. It's cold. Vicky's alone, and she doesn't know where she's going. She spots a passerby and asks for directions, but he isn't helpful. So she stops at a corner store and asks the sales clerk for help. Thankfully, the woman tells her which way to go. Vicky follows the woman's directions, but as she heads down the sidewalk, she confirms with other strangers she passes that she's going the right way. Finally, at 5.45 p.m., Vicky arrives at the bus stop. But when the bus pulls up at 6, there's no one waiting to get on. At 1 a.m. on February 11th, Sharon Hamilton is startled awake by a knock at the door. It's the police. Her stomach drops when they say the words, her sister Vicky never made it home. Sharon is shocked. She wastes no time telling the officers everything she and Vicky did that weekend, down to the clothes her sister wore. The officers thank her and leave. Sharon can't fall back asleep. When morning rolls around, she rushes to Reading to be with her family. Her mom, Jeanette, is nearly in tears. But she and Sharon keep it together for the sake of the two youngest children, six-year-old twins, Lindsay and Lee. Soon, officers from the Falkirk Police Department stop by. They speak briefly with Sharon and Jeanette. Given Vicky's age and rebellious track record, they think it's likely she ran away. Next, they go to Vicky's school to speak with her friends, hoping they might be able to confirm this theory. But none of them know anything. Officers return to the Hamiltons that evening empty-handed. They tell Sharon and Jeanette that if Vicky doesn't return by the following night, the Criminal Investigation Department, or CID, will take over the case. Sharon's heart sinks. She knows this could be bad. That feeling worsens when days pass and Vicky is still missing. The CID is in charge now. They bring Sharon and Jeanette to the station and question them for eight hours. They're not suspicious of the women. They just want to learn everything they can about Vicky. At some point, Sharon probably wants to know what else police are doing to find her sister. 
They can't simply be talking to her and her mom all day. Officers explain that two departments have teamed up to conduct search efforts between Reading and Bathgate, the Central Scotland Police and the Lothian and Borders Police. While the Hamiltons are glad to hear this, it's also frightening. It's unusual for departments to join forces like this. Once again, Sharon has a sinking feeling. But she doesn't want to sit idly by. She gathers a group of friends and they make missing person posters to distribute. Soon, Vicky's story gains traction in the press. But investigators don't have any solid leads. Desperate to find anything that might be a clue, officers search Sharon's apartment in Livingston. But all they find is a strand of Vicky's hair, which they file away for evidence. They've got nothing else to go on. That is, until February 21st. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. Eleven days after Vicki Hamilton disappears, a commuter finds a purse at St. Andrew's Station in Edinburgh. The man takes the purse to the local police. Officers search through it and find an ID. It's Vicki Hamilton's. They contact detectives at Lothian and Borders, who revisit the theory that Vicky ran away. For one, Edinburgh is the nearest major city to where Vicky was last seen. It's only about 15 miles from Livingston. But it's also in the opposite direction of Reading. What's more, St. Andrew's Station connects to many destinations across the UK, including London. Officers think Vicky might fit the age-old narrative of an unhappy, rebellious teenager who escapes her small town for the city. Now, a lot of time on the show, we hear about police who choose to do nothing when they think a minor is a runaway. They simply tell parents to wait. But the Lothian and Borders police don't do things that way. Rather, they expand their search. With the help of other departments, they get 200 officers, as well as a number of dogs, helicopters, and underwater search units to help. They even pull strings to get the case featured on BBC's Crime Watch. The extra efforts result in more tips. 60 calls come in, claiming to have information on Vicky's whereabouts. But they all turn out to be dead ends. The Hamiltons cling to hope, but it's not easy. By now, Jeanette is overwhelmed by the frequent police and press visits. She starts drinking heavily to cope. 
Sharon knows she can't leave her mother and siblings like this, so she abandons her life in Livingston and moves back in with her family. The search goes on for weeks. Then weeks turn into months. In October of 1991, there's still no sign of Vicky. Both the police and the family begin to think Vicky might not be alive. Authorities keep the case open, but they scale back the search. Eventually, they halt it altogether. A couple of years pass. Jeanette never overcomes the stress and heartache. She's continued drinking and it takes a toll on her health. It all proves to be too much. Just before the two-year anniversary of Vicky's disappearance, she passes away. Two years turns into five years. Five years turns into ten. The case runs cold. Until 2006. In September of that year, police in Glasgow are investigating the disappearance of another woman. Her name is Angelica Kluke, and she spent the last few summers living at Glasgow's St. Patrick's Church, about 30 miles southwest of Reading. She cleans the church in exchange for a room in the chapel house. But on September 26th, she's nowhere to be found. The Glasgow police take statements from everyone who works at the church, but don't gain any useful leads. They expect to move forward with a standard missing person investigation. But the next day, the church handyman, 60-year-old Pat McLaughlin, also goes missing. Officers had questioned Pat the day before, and he'd responded to each question calmly. Police return to the church, this time more suspicious of foul play. Is someone targeting church employees? They search the premises and soon find a blood stain on a table leg. And in a trash can near the table, they find Angelica's jeans. Then they spot a hatch near the confessional box. An officer lifts the door and sees Angelica's body inside. She's covered in a trash bin liner. Her hands are bound, her mouth is taped, and a gag has caused visible damage to her face. A blood-stained kitchen knife rests beside her. Officers now start thinking of Pat McLaughlin as a suspect rather than a second victim. They ask the priest what he knows about the man. Father Jerry Nugent says that McLaughlin is an unhoused man who came to St. Patrick's six weeks earlier, hoping to exchange handiwork for food and housing. Nugent took pity and welcomed him in. Authorities rush into action. They conduct searches throughout Glasgow and send out a citywide alert to be on the lookout for McLaughlin. While police scour the city, Angelica's body is sent for forensic analysis. Thanks to fingerprints and semen samples, it doesn't take long for experts to identify the perpetrator. However, the name that comes up isn't Pat McLaughlin. 
Instead, the DNA matches that of a registered sex offender with a violent criminal history. His name is Peter Tobin. Tobin was jailed in 1994 for the assault and rape of two teenage girls. He was released in 2004, but stopped showing up for parole check-ins about a year later. It seems no one tracked him down because he fell off authorities' radar. Now they believe he showed up at St. Patrick's under a new identity. They alert the public and the media. Meanwhile, at a hospital in London, a man checks himself in. He says he thinks he's having a heart attack. His clothes are stained, and the medical staff can likely tell that it's blood. But before asking questions, the doctor examines the man and doesn't find anything wrong. Hospital staff become more concerned when the man doesn't want to leave. They also notice that he won't make eye contact with anyone. No one's sure what to do. Until the doctor realizes that this man's photo is flashing across every TV. Without letting the man know what he's doing, the doctor phones the Metropolitan Police. An officer soon arrives, and once the man sees him, he gives himself up. He's Peter Tobin, and he knows they're after him. Now, what does Angelica Kluke's death have to do with Vicki Hamilton's disappearance 15 years prior? Well, that starts to become clear when Detective Superintendent David Swindle of the Strathclyde Police Department in Glasgow notices some odd patterns as he digs into Tobin's history. First, according to author Paul Harrison, Swindle learns that by 2006, Tobin has used 38 different SIM cards. Now, for those who may not know, SIM cards or subscriber identity modules connect your phone to the network and store information like your phone number, contact list, and text messages. If you get a new phone, you can transfer your SIM card so you don't lose all your information. You can also get a new SIM card for your existing phone. Many people opt to keep their SIM cards so they don't lose important data, but others might not want that data linked to them. Remember how I said that SIM cards are what connect devices to the network? Well, when investigating crimes, authorities can triangulate cell tower pings as a way to locate a suspect's phone, and hopefully the suspect. And don't forget that SIM cards also contain call and messaging history. If police get a hold of a suspect's phone, they might be looking at a treasure trove of evidence against them. For these reasons, many criminals replace and destroy their old SIM cards to cover their tracks. By 2006, Detective Swindle has been in law enforcement for almost 20 years. In his eyes, even though cell phones are pretty new at this point, it's not new for criminals to try to avoid getting caught. If anything, the fact that cell phones are so new makes it especially suspicious that Tobin has gone through 38 SIM cards. I mean, for example, I've only ever had one SIM card, and until this episode, I didn't even know you could change them. So it's a pretty big deal to change 38. 
These thoughts get Swindle's wheels turning. Something you need to know about David Swindle is that he keeps up with the changing times. According to his website, he is involved in the innovative use of TV, the internet, and social media regarding serious crime investigations. He's also responsible for mitigating risks and formulating policy regarding dangerous offenders. All that's to say, the detective thinks of the big picture. He knows there's usually more to a case than meets the eye, and the typical investigative procedure doesn't always cut it. So when Swindle looks at Peter Tobin's history, he sees that the puzzle isn't complete. He knows this suspect is hiding something. He also knows that he won't be able to uncover it on his own. Swindle contacts 43 police forces across the UK. He explains the case and tells them his plan. He wants to tap the public for information that will help form a timeline of Peter Tobin's life and potential crimes. He calls the effort Operation Anagram, and he asks for their cooperation. The other departments sign on. For one thing, they believe Swindle might be onto something, but they're also likely influenced by the memory of another case, one that's haunted them for years, the case of the Yorkshire Ripper. Between 1975 and 1980, the Yorkshire Ripper murdered 13 girls and women and assaulted seven others. Early on, most of the Ripper's victims were sex workers whom police referred to as having, this is a direct quote, doubtful morals. It's disturbing. Victim blaming is never warranted. But when you're talking about investigators blaming the victims of a serial killer, that's low. But back then, they could get away with it. At least until the Ripper started going after teenage girls, and police rhetoric suddenly became more sympathetic. The drastic shift shone a light on the callous way they talked about the Ripper's previous victims. Many people saw this double standard as a blind spot in the investigation. Before this, the public had been frightened. Now, they were angry. The criticism was validated in 1981 when police finally arrested a suspect, and it turned out to be someone they had interrogated nine times over the last five years. I talked about him at the start of the episode. His name was Peter Sutcliffe. It soon came to light the police blunders and lack of cross-departmental cooperation allowed Sutcliffe to walk away each time. That case left all kinds of scars on the country. For decades to come, the public and media would point to it as a reminder that the police couldn't be trusted to solve violent crimes even when the solution was right under their noses. Which brings us back to 2006 and Detective Swindle's Operation Anagram. Swindle knows all that history, and he's determined not to make the same mistakes as his predecessors. Fortunately, technology is on his side. In the years since the Yorkshire Ripper was caught, UK authorities have implemented a computerized system known as HOLMES, 
or Home Office Large Major Inquiry System. It's not exactly Sherlock Holmes, but according to the U.S. Department of Justice, the system allows, quote, the rapid automated retrieval of data formerly contained on manual index cards. If you recall our earlier episode, Tent Girl and Julie Doe, you know how integral digital databases can be. Well, here's what a huge difference Holmes makes. In the UK, individual police departments used to have rooms full of hard copy files dedicated to a single case. Now, these were known as incident rooms. Now, with Holmes, the forces involved in Operation Anagram can virtually cross-reference information on Peter Tobin with information on existing cold cases and missing person cases across departments, all in one place. It doesn't take long for investigators to make a huge discovery. Through Holmes' data, police learn that Peter Tobin lived in Bathgate in February 1991, the very same time and place that Vicki Hamilton went missing. Tobin's trail continues from there. In the summer of 1991, Tobin moved to Margate on the southern shore of England. At that time, an 18-year-old girl named Dinah McNichol disappeared while hitchhiking home from a music festival. Dinah lived in Brentwood, about 70 miles northwest of Margate. With a new surge of hope, the Lothian and Borders police reopened Vicky's case. One of the first things they do is go back over their evidence, including the purse that was found in Edinburgh shortly after Vicky disappeared. They submit the purse for DNA testing. It's unclear why they didn't do this back in 1991. It might be because detectives believed Vicky ran away. Now, it takes a few more months for the results to come in, but on June 1st, 2007, police find a key piece of the puzzle. In June of 2007, detectives learn that there is strong saliva sampling all over Vicki Hamilton's purse. However, it doesn't belong to Vicki or Peter Tobin. According to criminologist David Wilson and Sky News correspondent Paul Harrison, the DNA belongs to Tobin's son, who was only three at the time of Vicky's disappearance. With that information, detectives form a loose narrative. That wintry day in 1991, Tobin saw Vicky on the streets of Bathgate. He approached her, and she was willing to speak to the man because she needed help finding her bus stop. Somehow, he managed to take Vicky back to his place. His toddler son was also present at the house and got his saliva on Vicky's purse. At some point, Tobin did something terrible to Vicky. And 11 days after first encountering her, he discarded her purse at St. Andrew's Station to throw the police off his trail. With this new lead, authorities gain access to Tobin's old home in Bathgate. They tear the house apart, overturning furniture, prying up floorboards, and tearing down wallpaper. 
And at first, they don't find anything. But then the officers go into the attic. They search every corner, and there, between a rafter and the wall, they find a knife. The knife is spotless, save for a small shred of what looks like human skin. Officers send it for DNA testing. Thanks to the samples of Vicky's hair police obtained during their original investigation, analysts confirm that the skin is hers. It's strange to think about. On one hand, it's a massive accomplishment. A case that's been cold for over 15 years prior is now blown wide open, but the evidence points to a gruesome fate. And without a body, they can't be sure of anything. Officers don't find any more clues in the Bathgate house. But that house isn't the only one being searched. Nearly 500 miles away, another team searches the house in Margate where Tobin lived in 1991. A young couple now lives in the house, and they explain that when they moved in, they noticed a strong, foul odor. So they cleaned and renovated. Officers are going to have to be thorough. They bring in a ground-penetrating radar, or GPR, to scan the property. The GPR looks like a lawnmower, but uh, instead of cutting grass, it can detect objects buried deep underground. GPRs send a small pulse of energy into the ground and record any reflected signal. That's underground sonar, basically. Since the 1990s, GPR has commonly been used in forensic investigations, such as to locate unmarked graves or search for forensic evidence. Soon, the GPR detects something in Tobin's backyard. Officers remove the first few inches of earth. Then, they hit concrete. They use power tools to break through the slab, then carefully remove it. Something is hidden underneath. There are two bundles wrapped in black plastic bags. Roots have taken hold around them. Officers remove the bundles and find more underneath. Each one is meticulously wrapped. They carefully unwrap the first bundle. When its last layer is peeled back, a chilly silence runs through the scene. Officers are looking at the severed lower half of a woman. They quickly tear open the other bundles and find the rest of the woman's body. One of her hands still dons a set of rings. The young woman doesn't quite match the description of Dinah McNichol, but they know there are other potential victims. The body and evidence are sent for analysis. First, analysts find Peter Tobin's fingerprints on the plastic bags. Then they find his semen on the body. They use dental records to try and ID the victim. That's when they confirm that the woman is not Dynamic Nickel. It is Vicki Hamilton. After 16 years, they finally found her. Officers make their way to Sharon Hamilton's home. 
When they get there, Sharon has gathered her younger brother, Lee, and her partner, Brian. Tension hangs in the air. Finally, the officers share that they found Vicky's body. Sharon rises to her feet and staggers to the back garden. She falls to her knees and screams. A torrent of emotion floods her. After more than 16 years, they know the truth. But it is a horrible, ugly truth. The Hamiltons know about Peter Tobin. He's been all over the news. They know that Vicky isn't just dead. Tobin violently raped and murdered her, just like he did to Angelica Kluke, just like he may have done to other women. In November of 2007, about five months after Vicky's body was found, police find Dinah McNichol's body on the Margate property, buried not far from where Vicky was. This discovery brings Tobin's victim count up to three, officially making him a serial killer. Tobin is already serving a life sentence with a minimum of 21 years for the rape and murder of Angelica Kluke. In 2008, he goes to trial for Vicky's murder. He's found guilty and given a second life sentence, this time with a minimum of 30 years. When the verdict is read, the courtroom applauds. Afterward, the Hamilton siblings make a public statement. Lindsay takes the podium and tells the crowd that their family will remember Vicky as the spirited, lovely girl she was and that they can finally begin to move on. Sharon stands behind Lindsay, holding back tears. It's not just the verdict that makes her emotional. Lindsay was just a child when Vicky disappeared. Now... Sharon sees her youngest sister is all grown up, just like Vicky was the last time Sharon ever saw her. In 2009, Tobin is found guilty of Dinah's murder. The jury only takes 13 minutes to deliberate, and the judge hands down a full life sentence. Peter Tobin will never leave prison. While many now feel a sense of closure... Detective Swindle isn't done seeking the truth. He and other investigators believe Tobin had more victims. According to a 2009 article from The Guardian, ever since UK authorities first searched Tobin's properties, they have uncovered over 30 items that they think belonged to his victims. Not to mention, while in prison, Tobin boasts to a psychologist that he killed a total of 48 people. After making this claim, he refuses to cooperate on further questioning. Around the same time, investigators began looking into over a thousand lines of inquiry obtained via Operation Anagram. Their goal is to piece together Tobin's movements dating as far back as the 60s. And despite the high volume of leads, there are still huge gaps in their timeline. In 2009, Detective Swindle appears on Crime Watch and asks the public for help filling in those gaps. In all, police pour over 3,000 documents and investigate 6,000 lines of inquiry. But they never find anything that leads to more victims. 
In 2011, Detective Swindle retires and Operation Anagram winds down. He regrets being unable to give more families closure, but he's proud that two cold cases were solved. And he's still dedicated to helping people find answers. As of this recording, he owns an investigative firm called David Swindle Crime Solutions, in which he and his team provide a, quote, victim-focused approach to historical inquiries and leave no stone unturned in their investigations, irrespective of the timescales and complexities involved. In Swindle's own words, time does not diminish the victim's right to justice. And I think this points to something that sticks with me from this episode, the power that one individual can have. In the case of David Swindle, his efforts and initiatives led to the solving of these cold cases. But also for those of us that aren't detectives, remember back to the purse at St. Andrew's Station. We don't know who it was, but somebody picked up that purse and didn't put it in the trash, didn't take it home. They took it to police. And because of that one person, these cases got solved. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the disappearance of Vicki Hamilton, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Lost British Serial Killer by David Wilson and Paul Harrison and Sharon Hamilton's memoir, Taken, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show is developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Joseph Bricker, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.